Welcome to Neighborhood Church. To learn more about who we are as a community or to financially support Neighborhood, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. Hello, good morning again. Um, I had to switch from coffee to tea because I'm already like super jitters and I don't need more jitters. So I'm like practicing my breathing, trying to slow everything down. Um, it's good to be with you all this morning. We are, um, it's just kind of how the summer works, but I don't preach a whole lot. But the Sunday I end up preaching ends up being our birthday Sunday. So it's like our fourth year as a neighborhood church this Sunday. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah, I clap for yourself because you guys are the church. It's awesome. Um, we're going to spend some time today talking about a few ideas about um, living in the dark. Um, my, the title of my sermon is The Devil in the Dark, so we're going to talk a little bit about the devil. We don't often talk about the devil, um, but I'm going to give you just a little background into my life and kind of my spiritual, um, what would it be, like the spiritual formation of my life, because I've, I don't think I've shared that with everybody here. I mean, some people have the ins and know a little bit about my life, because I speak so infrequently. I thought I'd spend a little bit of time this morning just telling you kind of like, where I came from, and how things started in my life. But I'm going to start with this. So the thing I'd like us to rethink this morning, the whole purpose of this sermon, is rethinking our narratives about how we imagine the dark and then how we reimagine sleep. Um, I don't know about you, but as I get older, sleep becomes more elusive. I don't have the best sleep. Um, and I'm in my mid-40s, so things are changing anyway. So I don't feel young, but I don't feel old. I'm in that really unique space. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that because sleep matters. How we receive rest really matters to us. In the same way that we talk often about how we see God matters, how we participate with our own body, how we receive rest matters also. So I think that the church is full of uh, really smart humans, and we can carry multiple truths at one time, because often we can believe that light is good, darkness is bad. And um, there's a lot of good that happens in the light, and not everything that happens in the dark is always bad. So sometimes I think we can be dichotomous about the dark, and we can develop these biases. And oftentimes the church has spent a lot of time around the narratives of the dark and fear. And in this church, one of the things we really want to do is have conversations about things that often aren't talked about. Or maybe you've been curious about. I know for me, I was a pretty curious child. I had lots of questions about my faith. And depending on the face reaction I would get from whatever adult I was talking to, it really would change how I would um, ask questions. So we want to be the kind of community that you can ask all kinds of questions. So you can kind of tap into your inner uh, kid today. So I'm going to talk a bit about my personal experience, um, because like I said, I don't sleep well. And I have a difficult relationship with the nighttime. And I don't think I'm alone. Um, I was also raised in an era where um, Jacob Wetterling was kidnapped, and I think that changed a lot of the landscape for how people parented in that time. So there was a lot of fear, and rightly so. Um, and also for me, I was taught a lot about the devil and the dark, and so I had something to blame. I was just telling this to Rebecca. I said, when I, I was feeling ill yesterday, I'm like, I used to be able to just say, oh, it was the devil. The devil doesn't want me to get up and speak tomorrow. But I'm like, I can't blame the devil anymore. So who am I supposed to blame? So we're going to talk a little bit about what do we do with the way that we look at the dark. 
So my fear, I've noticed that my fear of the devil when I was younger was often uh, stronger than the confidence that I had in divine love. And to me, that seems like a bit of a problem because I want to have more confidence in being loved by the divine than being worried about fear and death and evil. So a couple of reflection questions. Uh, what stories do you believe about the dark that cause you to fear? Let's take a minute and think back. What are some of the stories that you've heard about the dark that cause you fear? Also, what were you told about evil that you've attached to people or practices or even seasons? What were you told about evil that you've attached to people, practices, or seasons? And then finally, how is your sleep? How are you resting? All right, for a little context, for those who are, there's a group of people who listen on the podcast, so podcast people, this is for you. Um, and for everybody, yeah, woo-woo for the podcast. Um, they can't see me, so I'm a white cisgendered woman. Um, I drive a minivan. I don't drive to soccer practice, but I drive to all the other things, like lacrosse, swimming, uh, football, um, all of that stuff. But also, I love to ride my mountain bike, and that's probably my favorite thing about my minivan. We call it the tank. It's huge. It's been through everything. It's got like 200-some thousand miles on it. It's awesome. Um, as far as the way I was raised, my spiritual upbringing, I grew up in a uh, fundamentalist evangelical Christian household. So we took the Bible very seriously. Um, it was a big deal to be saved or to be born again. And I'm pretty sure that with all the things that I've been through in my life, I'm pretty safe. I remember um, being three years old, and my parents listened to KDNW, which is like the local Christian radio station. And there was somebody on there speaking about um, having Jesus living in your heart. Now, just I'm going to pause right here. There's a lot of things that I'll say that oftentimes I have the idea that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. So if I'm going into explanation, it's a bit because oftentimes when you grow up in an evangelical church, you assume that's everybody's experience, and it's not. So um, I heard on the radio, there was a, a preacher that was talking about if you, if you don't want to go to hell, you need to get right with Jesus and have Jesus come live in your heart. And so as like a little three-year-old girl, I didn't want to go to hell. Who wants to? That sounds terrible. So I'm like, I don't really understand what it means to have Jesus in my heart, but I know I don't want to leave here without that. So it was, um, it's kind of like one of those core memories. I remember like sitting on the floor in my kitchen, and we had a, like a funky 70s like linoleum, and I liked to like lay on the floor and color because it had a cool impression that it would leave. So I was like coloring, and I looked at my mom. I'm like, Mom, how do I have Jesus in my heart? And so she got down on the floor with me in the kitchen, and we said the prayer. So basically the prayer is like, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Would you come live in my heart forever? So I think there's probably more uh, technical terms, but that's what I could remember. And I, in that moment, I felt just this safety. Like, I think I'm good. Like, I did the thing. Jesus is living in my heart. Did I understand what it meant to have Jesus living in my heart? Not at all. Not at three years old. Um, so moving on. So the next thing, I, um, I got baptized when I was 15 years old. And it was right before I was heading out on a mission trip because the church I was a part of, one of the things that was a part of your growing up was to go away on a mission trip and go serve and lead um, other people. And it was on one of these missions trips um, as I was away with others that I felt like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. I think I'm supposed to live my life in Christian service of others. 
Um, and a part of that evangelical training is that a large portion of your life is spent inviting people into relationship with Jesus. Also connected to that is there's also a fear, at least I had a fear, of all the people who didn't already have Jesus in their heart, that I was afraid for them all the time. And this did affect my sleep. Because at night, I would go to bed and think about this, I would think about all my cousins. Those are the people I thought of first. Now, they were Catholic, so they're practicing faith, their own um, practice of faith. But in my mind, I'm like, they're not saved. I don't think they've said the prayer. Because this is what's been built up for me, right? I'm believing that you have to say this specific prayer in order to be born again and be rescued from hell. And as a small child, that's a big deal. So I would lay awake at night and pray for the opportunity to be able to lead my friends or my cousins to Jesus. And if I had the opportunity to do it, it was the greatest high in the world. Just like I brought, and we talk about it as a family. Um, so at 15, I knew this is what I think is probably the best thing for me to do with my life. And so that uh, launched me on a whole lifetime. I was telling uh, Rebecca this morning, I'm like, I've spent, I'm 43, and from 15 to 43, I've spent my life in Christian leadership. And I don't say that because I need, like, a pat on the back or anything like that, but just as I start to, like, reevaluate and look at the things in my life, I've spent a lot of time in church and leading in church, and it started with worship. So usually if you see me, I'm playing the piano or playing the guitar. That was the, like, entry point for me, was to be able to sing because I love music. Um, and then it evolved. As I got older, I went away to college. I joined uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Is there anybody who joined, like, Chi Alpha or any of those things when they went to college? Yeah. And a part of this was um, when I left my home, my parents said, we're really glad that you're going to college, but you have to make sure that the devil doesn't get a foothold in your life. So make sure you find a Christian community to be a part of. And I don't share these things to, like, poke fun at my parents at all. They were doing exactly what they were trained to do to help me have a good spiritual life. And so I believe that I'm like, I got to, just as much as I'm learning all these secular things, right, or worldly things in college, I need to have the support of a Christian community. And so that's what led me to um, university. I mean, we had a lot of fun. It was, it was a blast. I've met most of my best friends are still in my life um, in university. Now, at one of these um, university events, so what would happen if you've never been a part of uh, a college experience? It's a little bit like youth group, but for college-age people. So we'd meet like on a Wednesday night, we'd bring in speakers, we'd have worship, and then during the week we'd like play games. It was really fun. Um, but one speaker came in on a Wednesday, and he talked about being an empowered evangelical. So he talked about not just about getting saved, but he said there's this whole part of life where like you participate with the Holy Spirit. Like you can actually feel the Holy Spirit's presence. You can see the Holy Spirit moving in a space. Um, and at the same time, you can also feel the presence of the enemy and you can say no to it. And this was one of the first times I heard and felt some power over some of the experiences I was having in the dark myself where I thought, oh, I could go to bed at night and like rest, and if I feel something like dark or heavy, I could just say, blame it on the devil, and just say, no, get away from me. Now, this created quite a bit of relief for me for a while, and I loved this practice. So I spent about 15 years um, following this pastor. I ended up leading in the church, 
And then I talked a lot about that, about, a lot about the Holy Spirit and how to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, how do we um, see the Holy Spirit moving and living in our lives. And for a large season of my, my life, I learned a lot. So as I look back, I see all these moments in my spiritual life where I've learned a lot of things, but at the same time, I've also picked up some things that aren't really helpful for me. So as we move around in our spiritual life, so this is for all of us, as we continue to grow, we're going to find that there are things we pick up that are really valuable that always stay true to us. There are some things that still stay, stay true. They've always been true. They'll stay. There are other things that have worked for a time, and then they stopped working. The hard thing is putting those things down. At least for me, I like routine. I really like when things stay the same. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person, like, I would like if fashion never changed because I hate having to change clothes. Like, I just, if I could wear this outfit for the rest of my life, I'd, I'd be so happy. I'm like, I don't have to think about clothes. I have to, ch- okay. Um, but that's not really socially acceptable. Like, you have to, like, change your clothes. You have, anyway, just a little weird thought about your pastor here that, anyway. Um, so I like routine. So the, the fact of having to lay down something that no longer serves me is really difficult. And oftentimes that thing is attached to other things. And the church can be attached to relationships. So you might find that as you've navigated your spiritual landscape, when you've had to lay things down, maybe you've lost relationships over that too. And that's hard. Um, so when I left uh, the church, this church that I worked at in 15 years, one of the reasons that we left, we've talked about um, the Vineyard Church quite a bit, so I'm not going to get into that as much. Um, but it's what those changes, the things that we laid down, is what, has, what helped us create this community here, Neighborhood Church, and we're celebrating four years. And that's because of people like you that are um, on the journey, that you're curious about what you believe. And you're okay living in um, that space where you don't always know everything. And that's not bad or good. It's just being a curious person. And so I appreciate uh, being in this space with you. So there's lots of consequences, like I talked about, when we leave things and lay them down. But in this church, we want to practice allyship work. We're all about liberation theology. We want to see people be liberated. Um, We want to do good work, and we want to be good people. We want those things to be connected, and we want to stay curious because our spiritual lives are a journey. Okay, so into the dark and into the nighttime. Uh, For me, nighttime was really difficult as a small child. I remember uh, laying awake most nights, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I would, like, see things in the night. Like, I would either be woken up and I'd just kind of feel something that just didn't feel right, or I'd often, like, see something that would move in my room, and I spent a lot of uh, time evaluating, like, things that I would read or um, things that I would see. And my parents did their very best work to help me. They would come in my room at night, and they would pray for me. They taught me how to pray. Um, they would put on music. They'd put, like, Christian music on in my room for me just to kind of quiet things. But eventually, they would have to leave. And since I was little, I'd just be left to kind of deal with the dark on my own. And so... Well, there were other people like my, bro- my brother is one of the things, right, with siblings. So I have one younger brother, and he could fall asleep anywhere. I don't know if this is just a part, like, he got the good sleeping jeans, and I got left with this, but he would, like, we would get in the car, and my dad's like, I'm taking you for ice cream. He would fall asleep on the way to Dairy Queen. It's like a three-minute drive. 
I look over, he's like, Jesus, just like, you know, not just sitting like, way falling over. Um, and then he'd get his ice cream cone, and he'd fall asleep again. And his ice cream would flop over on the seat. Drove my dad crazy because he was very fastidious about his car. Like, and so there's ice cream all over. And so my brother never got a chocolate cone. It always had to be a, a vanilla cone because it was easier to clean that out. Um, anyway, so my brother, still to this day, he can be like, I'm going to bed. And like, go to bed. There are, so God bless you. If you're that person that you can just go to bed, if you want to tune me out for a bit, it's, you can. Or you can just, oh, it's so hard for somebody who <laughs> doesn't sleep well because it is hard. Um, as I got older, I would just read. So I read every Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley Twin book over and over. And not like the versions they have now where it's like pictures. It was all the words. And because I had my light off, I would like put my lamp underneath my blankets. Like I created all these systems to like help me fall asleep. Um, let me take a drink of this. But reading worked for a while. Um, and eventually things got a little bit better because I had the devil that I could blame, right, if things were not um, going well. But there was always just a sense of sleep was really difficult. Whenever night would come, as soon as, like, the sky would change, there was just this growing anxiety inside of me, and it made it really hard. Now, um, I'm raising teens right now, so if you've, if you've been responsible for either babies or toddlers or teens, you know that that totally changes your sleeping schedule also. Um, just a little view into the Sauter household. There are some wild things that happen in our house on a regular, and we're, so we're the teen house, which some people who aren't the teen house are like, aw, I would love to be the teen house. No, you don't. You don't. Just love your life <laughs> that you're not the teen house. Because um, there's no going back. Once you decide you're the place where the teens hang out, they just show up. Like, my son and my husband and my daughter are gone right now, and his friends still showed up. I'm like, could you guys just go somewhere else for the night? My son's not even here. They're like, we just love it here. I'm like, I know, love you too. Bye. Go somewhere else. <laughs> somewhere else, man. There's another place. Go to McDonald's. I'll pay. I'll give you money. Go to McDonald's. Uh, but the strangest thing that ever happened is, oh, another thing, if you're the teen house, invest in a robe. You need to become a robe person. Like, it's just robes all the time. Just always in a robe. Um, anyway, I won't share that story. That's for, like, coffee another time if you want that story. Um, so I woke up at, like, 1 a.m. This is the strangest thing I woke up to, and I walk out, and it's dark. Like, teens do everything in the dark, all right? They don't turn on any lights. And I walked out because I heard this strange crinkling noise. It was, like, cellophane crinkling, and it was enough. It wasn't just, like, it was enough it got me up. And I go out, and there's, like, about 10 or so teenage, you know, and they're big now, right? Like, my football-sized boys, like, surrounding the kitchen table in the dark, holding raw eggs, like, still formed, and wrapping them in American cheese slices. Uh, uh, exactly. So I'm like, what is going on out here? And they all stop, and it was like... If you've camped and you've opened up your tent and you spot raccoons, that's a bit what it was like. They all just stop, and they're holding the eggs, and they're like, uh, we don't know. I'm like, you all know, drop the eggs, like, go home and go to bed. Just go home and go to bed. And I didn't wait. I'm like, I really don't want to know what they do next. I fulfilled my duty. I told them what to do. I'm just tightening up my robe and heading back <laughs> to bed. Um, but the eggs and the cheese. And I told my son, I'm like, I really don't want to know. Just don't just some things that I'd prefer not to know. So it's a bizarre world um, at, this, at the Sauter house. 
So that affects my sleep. <laughs> How could it not, right? Um, so there are, as we move on, there are other things that have colored my beliefs about the dark, and not just because of religion, but also your gender affects the way that you handle the dark. So if you are a female in the place, there are some different things that you are told. Now, I'm not a man, so I don't know what you're told, but um, I know I was told, like, don't go running in the dark, uh, don't go walking in the dark, don't walk alone at night, uh, don't drive. I had an earlier, um, don't drive at night, I had an earlier uh, what do you call that when you have to be home at a certain time? Thank you very much. I had an earlier curfew than my brother, and my dad's like, yeah, because you're a girl. <clears throat> this happens. This is real. This happens. So I had like a 9.30 curfew. I think my brother, well, whatever. He did not have a 9.30 curfew. Um, but we're told different things, and part of it was because there was some level of protection as a woman. You need to be careful. So don't drive late at night. Don't go down dark alleys. Uh, don't approach somebody in the dark. And while we, that can be a little bit laughable, it does initiate some fear in you, like, well, why can't I go out in the dark? As soon as, right, as, soon as somebody tells you don't go do that, you start wondering, like, well, why? Why can't I do those things? Um, and in the spiritual side of it, I was also told, be very careful what you do in the dark because then the devil has, like, access to you because you're, living, you're, like, you're, you're tempting the devil, basically. So if you move in that direction, you might get what's coming to you, which sounds really terrible, but these are honestly things that I'm not the only um, woman that has heard these things. Like, there are things that honestly we can be afraid of because of things we're told and a lot of it based on fear. Perhaps somebody wanted to protect us, but really it initiated fear in us. Um, so that's enough, that can be like enough spiritual baggage just way down um, when you hear that enough times. So basically what I came to, because you're not really told a lot of like what you can do, it's a lot more of what you can't do. So my working instructions were like, okay, don't touch anything that like seems or looks or smells bad. I don't really know what bad or darkness is, but if it seems like it is, I should probably stay away from it. Um, and I don't want to lose control, so I better stay very much in control of my person and where I am and always know my surroundings. Now, some of this is just wise knowledge, right? Some of it is like smart to know where you're going and what you're doing. Um, but if it leads you to just experiencing fear, it affects your relationships and how you approach the world and then how you would imagine God to be. Um, so currently, these are not things that uh, we're teaching at Neighborhood Church. We're really actively trying to um, move away from being fear-based, and we want to be wise. So I'm not saying we're not going to give instruction, but we want to move in the way of love, and we want people to feel curious in the world. So the things that I'm telling you are not things that we're planning to instruct children, or it's not things I'm telling my daughter it's hard, though, I'll tell you. There are times I really want to tell my kids, like, don't go do that thing because I'm a little scared. So I have to weigh out, like, is this a fear because really this is a dangerous thing or is it something that's a part of my past history? So it's tricky. Um, so I want us to stay curious. I had some real questions about um, why the devil had as much power as the devil did. So I wanted to know why, if a God who loved us so much, now Chris talked extensively about this in um, his sermon last week, but I just wanted to highlight it again. Because I had those questions. I'm like, why, if God is so loving, why would God create? If God created everything, 
why would God create a devil? Why would there be something evil that's wandering around the world and making things hard and terrible? And this seemed like an entry-level question, like you should be able to ask this question. Um, but no one seemed to ever have an answer for that, and people seemed to get offended when I would ask. Um, they would get angry or upset, and I'd hear things like, don't mock God, which I'm like, oh, okay, or God doesn't create evil, which is confusing, because I'm like, well, if God created the devil, then he create evil. These are larger theological questions than we're going to answer in this moment, but they were on my mind. Maybe you've had them. Um, God hates all evil, so I was told. So then he would hate the evil in me. What does that mean? Yikes. Um, and eventually, I would stop asking questions. Like, I still had the questions, so those are, like, stirred up inside of me. Um, but I felt a little crushed by anger and the perceived punishment I would get from people because I want to stay in relationship with the people in my church or my Sunday school teacher or other leaders. So I just stopped asking questions. So nighttime is when the questions would start. Like I'd lay in bed and I'm like, okay, nobody answered those questions. What do I do? I would think and um, perseverate on them. Um, It's as if we can't admit that there are things we just don't know. I think we live in a lot of spaces where we want absolutes. And it can be hard in a church setting to not give absolutes because there's a lot of power in that. Um, But I think there are just some things we just don't know or understand about this specifically fear or death or evil and darkness. Um, Do I believe bad things happen in the dark? Yes. Bad things happen in the light. Um, And is there real evil in the world? Yes, there is. Like, you're not making things up. Things are hard and they're evil. I do believe in evil. Um, And I think we come by these beliefs pretty naturally. And the Bible, which we read regularly, can, it can be heavy with references to train us to see the darkness as evil. There are things that talk about running from the dark and running into the light. And all the metaphors and the stories, poems and the historical references in most, not just the Bible, but I think in most of the literature that we read, frame up a story that dark is bad and light is good. So I've had an extensive amount of time I've spent studying the Bible. I did this thing called Bible quiz, this is a thing that churches did where you like study things and then you go and quiz on them. It's a little bit like knowledgeable. I've got a kid in knowledgeable now. I'm like, oh, I did this, only it was just about the Bible. Interesting. Um, so here are some things that I remember that are good things that happened in the Bible at, in the dark. Uh, Jace, Jacob wrestled an angel and he received a blessing and a brand new name. Abraham discovered he was the father of the nations and as many as the stars in the sky. Ruth runs to Boaz in the night and find sanctuary. The Hebrew people escape Egypt in the night, and they're guided by a pillar of fire and smoke. That would have been really cool to see. Um, Manna falls from the sky at night to feed people. Joseph predicts dreams and moves from dungeons to the palace. And at a nightly feast, Esther reveals the plan for execution of her people, and then they are rescued from death. So those are just some... There's many, many more, but I'm not going to go into that. But what I want to know about is what is God actually doing in the dark? Like, how can I reframe this idea of um, God in the darkness? One of my favorite books on this is written by uh, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, and the book is called Learning to Walk in the Dark. So if the things I'm saying is kind of sparking some curiosity for you, I would highly encourage you to pick up that book and read it. I'm just giving you a little smidgen of 
uh, what she talks about here. She shares that this view of darkness is far more nuanced than the one that demonized darkness. While the darkness is dangerous, it is sure a sign of God's presence as brightness is, which makes the fear of it different than the fear of snakes or robbers. When the biblical writers speak of the fear of the Lord, this is what they mean. Fear of God's pure being, so far beyond human imagining that trying to look at it would be like trying to look into the sun. This is called Mysterium Tremendum Infantis, or the terrible and fascinating mystery of God which exceeds human ability to manage it in any way. In Hebrew, there's a word for dark, Arafel, which was, was, which was reserved just in communicating about God. And it's this unnatural darkness that's dangerous and divine at the same time. It's the containing presence of God, similar to what Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor is talking about, that the darkness was a revela revelation of divine presence, but it also obscured it in the same way that the brightness of God's glory um, makes him extravagant or makes it extravagant as well. So one of the ways I use to define that for myself when I think about that Arafel idea that something that's dangerous and divine at the same time is I explain it as you have a moment where um, you, you feel something that just kind of feels otherworldly. Maybe you get like, we used to call them the Holy Spirit goosebumps. Like you just get goosebumps and you're like, something is happening and I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's something, maybe supernatural is also a word that's been used. It's dangerous and it's divine. It's not wrong and it's not right. And I've had these moments in the daylight. I've had them at night. I've had them standing in a room full of people. I've had them alone. But I think those are powerful moments for us to share with each other, but also then be aware of that um, they're good. They're good and they're um, undefinable. So a couple more questions. What if we can walk in the dark without letting the fear overwhelm us? What if we can learn that the dark is just as valuable as the light? Part of our growth is and maturity is being able to reevaluate the things that we know and that we've learned and that we can notice our bias, we can make wise decisions how to act. Um, this maturity causes us to reflect on our life. Like I was talking about, there's things I'm looking back, seasons in my life, even how I've grown through my spiritual process. There are things that stay with me and things that I leave behind. We can set down beliefs and habits and relationships that keep us from flourishing just the same way we can pick things up. And I'm not saying that this is easy. This is some of the hardest and most beautiful work you'll do is laying things down, because not everybody always understands why you would choose to lay down the thing that you're laying down, because maybe it won't make sense to your community. But it might be something that's powerful and changing for you. Uh, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That might be a little bit prickly. So T.S. Eliot said this, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Hmm. Um, some of our bias against the dark, I'm going to talk just a little bit physically why we have some problems with the dark. Um, we have a biological instinct to fear uh, the dark because our eyes aren't really well attuned to the dark. Um, I started having some trouble being able to see and drive at night, so I figured there was something wrong with my prescription, so I went in to see uh, my eye doctor. 
And for those of you who go to the eye doctor, there's, you, you know that whole thing where you have to choose one or two. If you've never gone to the eye doctor, they put this machine in front of your face, and then they slowly like click through these lenses, and then you have to decide, is one or two a better view for you? And so I'm sitting there, and she just kept going, one or two, one or two. And I felt like she was, like, her arms are way out here, and she keeps clicking. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to end up with, like, this just huge glasses when I leave here. There's something really wrong with my eyes because she just kept going, one or two. No, that wasn't the case at all. She's like, your eyes are actually fine. She's like, but we're just not evolved to see well at night. That's just a part of being human. We're not nocturnal. Um, so... The darkness exposes our natural vulnerability. We have vulnerability as humans. We can't see as well as what's coming down the road. We rely on light to help us. And like the inventive and fearful humans that we are, we decided to do something about the dark. So all of us live now with the invention of incandescent light. We live, like, I don't know that any of us can remember a time where there wasn't the ability to flip on a light switch and turn on light. Um, and because of this, we've been able to make advancement in every area of life. So there's nothing wrong with electric light, but it has changed the way that we are as humans. Um, we, I don't even think we know life without it. Um, Clark Strand, who, like um, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, he wrote quite a bit about spirituality in the dark. And because of some of the struggles he had with his own um, inability to sleep, he... Um, he studied quite a bit about the dark and the dark night of the soul and what that meant to him. And so here's what he said about the invention of light. The only casualty was darkness, a thing of little value, an absence, really, a blank space on the canvas of eternity that we can fill in as we please, or so we thought. Clark shares about his experience with his own insomnia and the dark and the dark night of the soul. Um, and as he was trying to look for some answers, because that happens. When you don't sleep well, you start, and we need sleep. It's a glue. It holds everything together. You start looking for help. And so he came across a sleep study at the National Institute of Mental Health, and he participated in it. And throughout the whole study, at the end of it, he learned that there was really nothing wrong with how he slept, um, because he was a man who slept and woke up regularly. He had no, like, steady eight hour of sleep time. Um, so let's go back a little bit. So here's some of the history he learned about light. So if, you, if we go back a few centuries ago, before the invention of the light bulb, no one slept in like an eight-hour cycle. No, because right now, because we have lights on, we can stay up until we turn the lights off. But there was like 14 hours of darkness that people would live in, and so what used to happen is that people would kind of come in and out of sleep. They would lay, lay down and rest for a while, they would wake up, because 14 hours is a long time for it to be dark. Um, and so during this study, Clark and the other participants, what happened was they initially all slept for about 11 hours just to kind of re-regulate what was going on in their bodies. Um, but what the researchers found was that after that, they kinda, these uh, participants hit this level of sleep where they weren't really asleep and they weren't really awake. And um, they, were, they had discovered like a new form of consciousness where people weren't really asleep and they weren't really awake. And that had disappeared since the invention of light. And so for the scientists, it was like discovering a fossil that nobody had ever found again. That there was something in the way that this group of people were sleeping that was different, that was touching back to history. And so what I thought about was that because of that, it would change the context of how people 
wrote things 100 years ago or how they told stories. Maybe that's why there's so many dreams that we hear about in ancient texts or stories because people spent so much time in the dark. They had more time living in kind of that unconscious, conscious state where they weren't really sleeping, they weren't really awake. Um, but I found that to be incredibly fascinating because oftentimes I spend a lot of my time just thinking about the time that I'm in and there's something really good about um, thinking about what's framed up life before us. Now, perhaps you are somebody who sleeps really well. So you're like, that's really great, Nikki. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> that's good. Uh, maybe you're not sleeping well right now. I mean, it's really hard. Um, maybe you have some feelings about the dark. Like, what are some things that we can practically do? What are some things that we can try? Um, one of the things that I found that, um, oh, first of all, you just if you are having those troubles, please go talk to your doctor. That's a p perfect person to go talk to. If you've had many, many nights of uh, restless sleep, please talk to your doctor. If you're thinking of just some reflective practices, that's what I'm going to talk to us about um, as we close here. But one of the things that's really helped me is um, not just ignoring the things that are going on, but making some space for all of those questions that I've had about my spiritual life or uh, about the dark or unanswered questions. Um, learning to live in some ambiguity is really hard. It's a really hard space, especially for me. I really like concrete answers. Um, and so I found that breathing practices really help. And so what I'd like to do as we close here is um, I'd like to read a prayer. And this is written by one of my favorite um, authors. Her name is Pixie Lighthorse. And she writes, she has an incredible book on prayer that I go to regularly and often at night. If I'm feeling overwhelmed in my brain, I'll go and read one of her prayers. And it doesn't always answer all of my fears, but it does help kind of settle the place that I find myself. So I'll set it up this way. If um, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or do any of those things. But similar to our worship experience, what I'm hoping that you'll find in this prayer as I read it is maybe you'll find a word or a phrase that you could meditate on that would help you. Um, um, as you continue your spiritual journey. I'm just going to ask you to, you don't have to do anything. If you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. But I would ask you just to re-engage with your breath. If you're someone who kind of like holds your breath while you're listening, take a moment. Just re-engage uh, with your breath as I read this prayer. Thank you for this day of acknowledging the nature of what is prompting me to flee. My fears are stopping me keeping me small and hidden in a corner. Stand me up and set me free from the tiny room of shadows in which my voice wavers and my shoulders shudder. Help me relocate them out of power. When my throat locks up and silence is thick on my tongue, coat it with courage. Arm me with the sword of light to slice through the illusions that have too long I've been believing about myself. Guide me smoothly through the challenges and anxieties of the unknown. Redefine my relationship to uncertainty. Light up the room with a shining white glimpse of life on the other side of these consuming and sometimes irrational discouragements. Remind me that the few of my fears that actually come true, and even if they did, it does not mean that they always will. Equip me not for the worst that can happen, but suit me up with determination to take all things into consideration with a reasonable and quiet mind. Give me pause to reflect before reacting. 
Let me listen with the heart of a loving parent to the part of me that is afraid to cross the shaky bridge. Let me not be daunted by the devouring sensation of fright, but instead thank it audibly for its warning and attempt to protect me from harm. Let me learn a new way to console my fears and talk myself through the process. Demonstrate how I can gently dismantle terror and soothe my uneasiness with the wisdom of what I know to be true. Let my voice feel the fright and speak anyway. It is okay if it trembles. It will not always be the way I practice. Help me to understand what it will be like to be free and to take measured steps to get there. Fill my lungs with assurance and hope. So as I end here, Neighborhood Church, um, my hope and prayer for you is that you'd be filled with assurance and hope and that you're not alone wherever you find yourself um, on your journey. Thank you so much for coming to church. You're welcome to stay and visit as long as you would like or if you want to go out and start your day and um, enjoy the beauty outside, you're welcome to do that as well. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you.